Welcome, and thank you for wanting to learn more about what God says on love. It is a fascinating subject, isn't it? Has there ever been a topic about which more has been written or sung? Maybe it's so interesting because we need love like we need oxygen. Maybe it's so intriguing because there are so many kinds of love or because of the intensity of the emotions related to it. I mean, there is no better brain chemistry than being in love. At the risk of getting an obnoxious 80s song stuck in your head, love hurts. Can you believe how much love can hurt? The longer you live, the more you'll be like, yep. One of my favorite authors says this on the relationship of pain and love. He says, quote, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it up carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it'll change. It will not be broken. It will become impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. C.S. Lewis. So love is dangerous. It will make you cry. But you don't protect your heart by acting like you don't have one. And what C.S. Lewis is saying here is that still, you really should love anyway because it's worth it. It's worth it because, man, the blessings that come to those who live a life filled with love. So timeless truths like love always start with this same foundation. There is a God, and like any good father, our Heavenly Father has clearly communicated his deep love for all of us. He's also communicated all the beautiful ways that we can express our love both to him and to one another. Some of those ways may come as a surprise to you, especially if you are new to his eternal wisdom. Much of what the source of love says about love is quite counterculture today. Let's explore together for a few moments what love himself says about love. One of the most foundational truths about love is that God says that he is love in 1 John 4, 8. I appreciate very much the following observation that one commentary noted, quote, he is not merely benevolent. He is benevolence itself. Never has a more important declaration made than this. Never has more meaning crowded into a few words than in this short sentence. God is love. And that was from Barnes. A second foundational truth is that since God created you and I in his own image, we reflect his image best when we fulfill our reason for being created. And that is simply put, to love God and to love one another. This is the meaning of life and has always been the meaning of life. Thousands of years ago, God said it this way through his servant Moses, quote, What does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for 
you're good, unquote. Over and over again, you find this principle in scripture, this connection of adoring God with every part of our being and expressing that love through honoring his laws. That is aligning our lives with his will for our own good. Listen to how badly God wants us to do the things that are for our own good. In Isaiah 48, 17 and 18, I am the Lord your God, he says, who teaches you what is best for you, who directs you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river, your well-being like the waves of the sea. Obedience is God's love language. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In fact, Jesus said there is no greater commandment than to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And then Jesus adds this profound truth. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these, unquote. Mark 12, 30 and 31. On this, our brother in Christ, Gary Henry says, quote, we never refuse our God without breaking his heart. And in the end, that is what sin always comes down to, a refusal to accept God's love. When we say no to him, we are stubbornly saying no to the better things that his love is longing to give us. The most primary foundational act of love is then to open our heart to receive the love of God. We see a beautiful example of this in Acts chapter 2 when the people who had crucified Christ came to that realization of what they had done and they go, what should we do? It's a great question because the reality is every single one of us is complicit in the crucifixion of Christ because it was my sin and yours that required that atonement. So what should we do? Here's the answer in Acts 2, quote, repent, which means stop doing evil things, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and your children and for all who are far away, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself, unquote. You and I are in that verse. Did you catch that? We are the ones who are, quote, far away, unquote, both geographically and in terms of years since he spoke those words. But still, the promise of forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit are promised to us as well when we begin our relationship with God by being born again out of the waters of baptism. Someone has noted, quote, this is what God wants most from you, a relationship. God made you to love you, and he longs for you to love him back. Learning to love God and be loved by him should be the greatest objective of your life. Nothing else comes close in importance. If you want to know how much you matter to God, look at Christ with his arms outstretched on the cross saying, I love you this much. I'd rather die than live without you, unquote. That was Rick from Rick Warren. 
When we are in relationship with God, he says that gift of the Holy Spirit causes nine beautiful qualities to grow in our lives. And you would do well to memorize these qualities. They are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. So we learn from this verse that Christian love is the result of God's spirit within us. And when God's spirit is within us, we are in the perfect position to begin using love to create beauty in all our other relationships. 1 John 4.20 reminds us that it's impossible to love God without loving our brethren. 1 John 4.12 explains God dwells in us if we love one another. And by our loving one another, his love is made complete in us. 1 Thessalonians 4.12 teaches us that the very ability to love to overflowing comes from the Lord. You could even ask him to help you have an overflowing kind of love for everyone in your life. I mean, that is a legitimate prayer request for sure. And it would give you a beautiful, beautiful life. God has loved us at our darkest, Romans 5, 8. And he says, quote, I have loved you with an everlasting love in Jeremiah 31, 3. And what do you and I do about that? I mean, how do we respond? The answer is, freely you have received, freely give the love of Jesus to others. So let's shift gears for a bit and explore now those very familiar qualities of love in 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. So let's unpack these qualities one at a time and see what useful things that we can learn. So first off, love is patient. If patience is challenging to you, I can totally relate. One of my greatest sources of happiness is to witness results or at least progress from my efforts. But I've come to learn what my impatience is all about. It's really about accepting on the most basic level that God is God and I am not. Impatience is about two things. It's about being discontent with the amount of time my desired outcome should take. Second, it's about my discontent with the reality of the free will of others and wanting them to do what is best for their own spiritual interests, like yesterday. When I realize what a holy thing it is, though, to wait on the Lord, Psalms 27:14, and actually prefer his timing to my own, a more contented mindset takes over. Results will, more often than not, take longer than expected, and in some cases, results will never happen. My job, though, is to ask God daily 
to grant me a mind of tranquil acceptance of the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can and should change, and the wisdom to know the difference between what is in my power and what is outside my power to change. So the key to, quote, being content in every circumstance, unquote, or tapping into patience is to accept present realities and to move one's mind toward only what we have some control over. Anything else is spinning our wheels and all you're doing when you dwell on negative emotions like impatience over things you can't change is the loss of precious time that you could be feeling grateful. Am I saying grateful during frustration? Yes. God says in James 1, 4, that patient endurance is an opportunity to gain maturity. In fact, Jesus said patient endurance is what saves our souls in Luke 21, 19. You see, everything that tests our patience can be used to prepare ourselves for eternity when we endure whatever it is without sinning. That's why agape love that is the highest form of love, willingly waits for sex until marriage. Love says, I am so in love with your soul, I'm going to deny myself. Love is not lust, although lust can sometimes feel more like love than love does. But let's not be like the rest of them. If you are the last girl in high school or college to think sex is sacred enough to save for your one covenanted partner for life. Good for you. Literally good for you. To those whose patience is tested just on the daily nagging irritations of family members or co-workers around you that you cannot change, distracting yourself with thoughts that are both true and lovely and plans that are useful is a simple but legitimate life skill to help you coexist with the rocks in your shoes. To moms who are listening today, when God says a gentle and quiet spirit is precious in his sight, First Peter 3, 4, that includes when we are raising our children, of course. So every word you say affects who they are and how they will later relate to God. Ultimately, your job is to put their little hand into the hand of God. I'll add this. You don't need volume. I mean, I have regrets around this area, and I'm trying to spare you the same regret. You don't need volume because you're already smarter, bigger, and you own everything. So you don't need to yell. <laughs> you have all the power you need. You don't need to raise your voice. Your gentleness and quietness during discipline shows your children what self-control looks like. That's what they need to see. Before we move on from patience, one little warning here. Be careful not to mistake neglecting to discipline your children as being patient. Indulgence is not love. Indulgence is closer to apathy, which is the opposite of love. Love actually addresses self-destructive behavior. We see that all over the Proverbs, don't we? Love never enables sin, then calls that enabling patience. With regard to patience with adult rebellious children, we see in Luke 15 that love patiently waits, prays, and leaves the door unlocked for the return of one's adult children who are in rebellion to God. From the prodigal father, we learn that love does not head over to the far country to deliver birthday presents or pay the prodigal's rent so he doesn't end up hitting rock bottom. Instead, love patiently waits 
and loves a prodigal soul enough to let their body suffer if the prodigal insists it to be so. Since souls are eternal and bodies are not, this is the kind thing to do. Love is kind. To wives, I'll say this. The things you take for granted, someone else is praying for. To keep the one you have, treat them like you don't have them yet. To prevent familiarity from breeding contempt, what if we treated everyone, including everyone in our family, as if we were receiving a great guest? Let's give thought to how to word everything that comes out of our mouth. Sometimes we have a lot more kind thoughts and ideas than we have actions. And in order to keep that from being the case, it's a really great idea to set up a system for scheduling acts of kindness if need be. I mean, certainly acts of kindness should happen in an organic way when needs arrive. But if every Monday or whenever you perhaps scheduled to visit someone lonely or to show hospitality or make an encouraging phone call, some people make it a point to send out one meaningful, encouraging, heartfelt text today. I mean, that's a fantastic idea. So I'm just saying let's prioritize kindness in that way and watch what good God can make of it. Love is not jealous. Some translations say envy, and I'm not sure which one is more accurate here. I mean, the difference between envy and jealousy, of course, is that envy wants what belongs to another, and jealousy fears that what one has will be taken away by another. Neither one is rooted in love because both are self-serving. I mean, envy, if you think about it, is really at its root an accusation towards God that he has been unjust or has made some kind of accounting error, so to speak, when he was divvying up portions of blessings. Envy is also a blindness to how we've been blessed worlds beyond what we deserve. When it comes to marital jealousy, Henry Emil made this observation, quote, jealousy is a terrible thing. It resembles love, only it is precisely love's contrary. Instead of wishing for the welfare of the object loved, it desires the dependence of the object upon itself and its own triumph, unquote. To those who are jealous when their children form close relationships with spiritually mature adults in your church family, realize that that love is exactly what you want for your kids. Don't be jealous. You need all the good influences that you can get on your team, and much good can come from this. Others are jealous of the blessings or talents or achievements that others have. But comparison truly is the thief of joy. That's why in 2 Corinthians 10, God through the Apostle Paul forbids it. God would rather us be happy than fixate our attention on the blessings he has given to others. Gratitude is the antidote to envy. Gratitude turns what we have into enough. If you want to hear more on this, I have a series called Finding Your Joy that talks about keeping your eye on your own plate, so to speak, as a technique for focusing on your own blessings. For those who have never married or for one reason or another have lived a single life, this can be a challenge for some. And I want to acknowledge that disappointment. If that's how you feel about your singleness, others genuinely prefer it. I get that too. But either way, please, Take notice of the fact that our main text today of what love is in 1 Corinthians 13 and also what we just noted in chapter 10 about not comparing ourselves with others was written by a single man, the Apostle Paul, who had a lot of loving relationships in his very full and productive life. 
The reality is those married with children do not always have more love in their lives than single people who have learned to skillfully weave their love in and around God's people. So married people have some advantages and you certainly have some advantages that they don't have. I'm convinced that you can have just as much love in your life, whether you marry or not, but you'll need to use some extra creativity to create a life where all that love in your heart is poured out on others to the glory of God. And for the rest of us, let's look around our congregations for single people, young and old, who we can draft to be aunties and grandmas and such into our individual families. They have so much love to offer. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Arrogance says, I regret nothing. Love says, apart from God, I can do nothing. John 15, 5. To God, love says, not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Psalms 115:1. To others, love has this attitude. I'm not interested in competing with anyone. We're all on the same team. I hope we all make it. 1 Timothy 1.5 is a real eye-opener on how love is not arrogant. Here's what I mean. Every single Bible class, every single sermon, every single published book on important spiritual topics, every relevant spiritual conversation, all of these kinds of instruction must have one goal. And that goal is not to make a name for ourselves or anything else that is self-serving. It's really the complete opposite of that. Just like in the first century, it's really more about being willing to be hated by the world in order to share God's love. So 1 Timothy 1.5 says what the goal is. It says, the goal of our instruction is love. Every instruction from God is in some way an application to love. Love is the goal of our instruction. The most meaningful act of kindness anyone can express to you is to share any information that draws your soul closer to God. Great people are those who make others feel that they too can become great in the eyes of God. When you pray for someone, you are offering the purest kind of love. I just met someone on Sunday. Listen to how powerful one act of kindness is. As most of you know, my husband and I have been living out of a van for about six months now and are trying to visit 100 Churches of Christ. Well, this last Sunday, I met a brother in Christ who spent 35 years riding on tour buses with some of the most famous rock stars of the 70s and 80s, setting up the stages for their concerts and also was neck deep in all the vices that so often accompany that scene. And I'm, I'm going to refrain from dropping names here so that you're not distracted. But he literally saved the life of a rock star whose name everyone knows. So after the rock star gets clean and sober, everyone in the band and on the stage crew does too. And then one day someone walks up to this rock concert stager and asks if he can pray with him. And he agrees. And afterward, instantly cold turkeys on the spot, the remaining sin in his life. One thing led to another, and in the end, he ends up baptized and is a faithful member of a congregation that shall also go unnamed. I mean, it was that one little act of love and kindness of saying, may I pray for you right now, that made all the difference for the soul of this man. So let's love boldly like that, shall we? It was such an inspiring story. Love 
does not act unbecomingly. Other translations say rude, disgracefully, improperly. We must always try to put ourselves in the positions of those who are hearing what we're saying or reading what we're writing so that we can say what we really mean in the least offensive way. 1 Corinthians 16, 14 reminds us that love must accompany everything that we do. A good person loves people and uses things. A bad person loves things and uses people, said Sidney J. Harris. That's why love prevents all faithful Christians from viewing pornography. Pornography uses people. Pornography in any media you wouldn't invite Jesus to sit next to you and watch is not rooted in love. In fact, the truth is, most entertainment being created today is Satan's propaganda. There seem to be very few exceptions. So another unbecoming thing for the Christian woman is immodesty. Drawing sexual attention to oneself is not loving because the reason you've been given life and a body is to use it as a tool to entice souls toward all eternity. Men are told by God to only sexually desire their wife and that if they desire another woman besides their wife, they are committing adultery in their hearts, right? Matthew 5, 28. Given the reality that is only the pure in heart that will see God, Matthew 5, 8, let me ask you this. When you are in public in your bikini or are bearing your midriff or are displaying your cleavage or are wearing shorts two inches down from where the sun doesn't shine or your pants look like they've been spray painted on, here's the statement that you're making. What you are saying to men when you dress like all the rest of them is this. I'm fine with you never seeing God. I'm fine with your going to hell just as long as I feel attractive right now. Do you see how mean that? is. Love does not act unbecomingly. If you choose instead to be soul food instead of eye candy, you will have more dignity and you'll make the world a better place. Love does not seek its own. Other translations say is not self-seeking or selfish. Of course, talking about love is meaningless, but selfless love in action, that's meaningful. First John 3, 18. In John 13, 35, Jesus said, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another, unquote. So our brotherly love is itself evangelism. Faithful Christians refuse to gossip because they realize that gossip is actually selfishness. Because gossip is a way of saying, look how in the know I am, all at another person's expense. The gossiper thinks she's winning friends and influencing people and doesn't realize she's actually losing a lot of respect and trust. She's losing respect because we all know that what Susie says about Sally says a lot more about Susie than it does about Sally, right? 1 Peter 4.8 reminds us that love prevents sin, including the sin of gossip and the damaging ripple effects that gossip has among the bride of Christ. When it's hard to not be self-seeking, Ezekiel 36.26 may be something to ask from God. There God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and will give you a heart of flesh, unquote. So it is okay to ask God to soften your heart towards those you are having the hardest time loving. And then remember, love is something that we can choose to put on, as Colossians 3.12 describes. 
And when we do, we experience that higher level of brotherly peace and unity that Jesus prayed for his disciples before he died. Next, love is not provoked or easily angered. You don't have to attend every argument you're invited to, right? So let's become masters of de-escalating unnecessary drama. Let's be mediators and help opposing sides find common ground upon which they can build peace when possible. Let's keep the volume down and not have intense emotions about things that don't really matter that much in light of eternity. If you think about it, outbursts of anger really is a kind of childlike indulgence, but there's a special honor to containing oneself during outrage. When mature people are opposed, it arouses their attention, not their anger. The coolest people know how to keep their cool. If you have trouble managing your anger, there are a lot of YouTube videos on that now, so you can practice that kind of self-control. Aristotle talked about all the things that must temper anger if we are to be angry and sin not, as Ephesians 4.26 says. He says, be angry with the right person to the right degree at the right time for the right purpose in the right way. Test your anger against those wise principles. Next, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Here's a quote. The local church is a classroom for learning how to get along with God's family. It is a lab for practicing unselfish, sympathetic love. Only in regular contact with ordinary, imperfect believers can we learn real fellowship and experience being connected and dependent on each other. God's mercy to us is the motivation for showing mercy to others. Remember, you will never be asked to forgive someone more than God has already forgiven you. Whenever you are hurt by someone, you have a choice to make. Will you use your energy and emotions for retaliation or for resolution? You can't do both, unquote. Rick Warren. God has taught us how to forgive so that we do not have to seek vengeance or live a life full of bitterness or grudges. Many of the wrongs we suffer are unintentional or miscommunications and can be worked out. When you work things out, you have become a peacemaker. The same author noted this, quote, Notice Jesus didn't say, blessed are the peace lovers because everyone loves peace. Neither did he say, blessed are the peaceable, who are never disturbed by anything. Jesus said, blessed are those who work for peace, peacemakers, those who actively seek to resolve conflict. Peacemaking is not avoiding conflict or running from a problem or pretending it doesn't exist. Being afraid to talk about it is actually cowardice. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, was never afraid of conflict. On occasion, he provoked it for the good of everyone. Sometimes we need to avoid conflict. Occasionally, we need to create it, and often we need to resolve it. Next, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. The world has a lot of bogus things to say around love. When I was in my teen years, a very famous movie had everyone quoting, love means never having to say you're sorry. Unquote. As if love somehow prevents every miscommunication or suddenly makes us perfect. A more recent message everywhere says love is love. That is to say, 
since there is no God and there certainly is no word of God, then no matter what age or gender of the person that you're sexually involved with, it's all beautiful and makes no difference. I have been present at Bible meetups, open to the public, and watched denominational attendees' jaws drop when they read for the first time verses like 1 Corinthians 6, 9 that says, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, unquote. What a contrast to the love is love propaganda. Every sexual sin is treated with equality in this verse. There's not a favored version of fornication that gets a free pass into the kingdom of God. The day my future husband read this verse in 1979 and had been up to his neck in fornication, this verse sounded like love to him because the truth only sounds like hate to those who hate truth. And what is truth? Jesus said God's word is truth, John 17, 17. And that includes what we just read in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 about who can enter the kingdom of heaven. So if love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, then we need to be so in love with souls that we are honest about what God says on every topic so that all can know there is an option to choose a fresh start in life that leads to an eternity with their God who loves them so. You see, we actually love this population best because we tell them the truth, even if it hurts at first. In the long run, it's better for all of us to be slapped with the truth than to be kissed with a lie. Or as, as Proverbs 39 puts it, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of the enemy. Next, love bears all things. I've been a Christian for about 44 years now, and it's been so moving to witness all my life, church family who sticks together. I mean, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health. Like Proverbs 17, 17 says, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity, unquote. So granted, it's a lot of work to ride along through the ups and downs of everyone's life events within a church family. But as 1 Thessalonians 1, 3 acknowledges, that's what love does. Real love labors. Everything of real value takes work, right? Bearing each other's burdens is, in the end, a beautiful thing. Next, love believes all things. That is to say, love never loses faith. Since love believes every single thing that God says, it makes sense why 2 Timothy 2.22 says, love is what we are to run to when we run from sin. God is love, and we are to run to him from the jaws of the roaring lion so eager to devour our souls, 1 Peter 5.8. And because we believe every single thing that God says, our souls reside safely in his arms, free from the fear of the dread of evil. Proverbs 1.23. We will never lose faith. Next, love hopes all things. Love is optimistic because it has witnessed time and again what the power and the providence of God can do with off chances and hope against hope. Romans 4.18. We don't care about odds. We have got the power of the one who runs the universe on our side. Next, love endures all things. Love outlives every single challenge in life. And in the end, 
even outlives faith and hope because in eternity, faith and hope will be fulfilled and realized. But love will remain throughout all in eternity unencumbered. Faith endures all things. And finally, love never fails. First John 2.10 describes love as a spiritual light that prevents spiritual stumbling and spiritual failure. So carry that flashlight of love through this dark world. Love never fails. In conclusion, God wants us to think of ways to help each other love one another. Hebrews 10.24. I've tried to do that for you during this podcast, and perhaps now you can think of ways in your own circle to stir those around you to love and good deeds. What could you do this week to show love to someone who needs it most? God has given you a fingerprint that no one else has so that you can leave an imprint on the hearts around you that no one else can. You were born for this. The greatest thing you'll ever learn to do is to love and be loved in return. For a deeper look into this topic, I'd encourage you to read C.S. Lewis's book called The Four Loves. It's called The Four Loves because it digs into the differences of the four Greek words for love, from which we get our one word for love. And finally, someone is beautifully noted. Love is a mighty power, a great and complete good. Love alone lightens every burden and makes the rough places smooth. It bears every hardship as though it were nothing and renders all bitterness sweet and acceptable. The love of Jesus is noble and inspires us to great deeds. Nothing is sweeter than love, nothing stronger, nothing higher, nothing whiter nothing more pleasant, nothing fuller or better in heaven or earth. For love is born of God, 1 John 4, 7, and can rest only in God above all created things. Thomas A. Kempis. It will take us all eternity to find out the height and breadth and length and depth of the love of God. Until then, let all you do be done in love. God bless.